We're going to be over here in 1 Timothy as we consider the truth about church. These letters, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, are all written by Paul to individuals. They're unlike the letters that Paul wrote to churches, a general letter to a church, say, like Ephesus or Philippians, wrote to Philippi, or Colossae, or the churches in the region of Galatia. These are to individuals, yet they were meant to be read aloud in the church. They were to the individual, and they were to the church as well. As Paul uh, communicates uh, what is important, not only for the church, but important conduct uh, among those who make up the church and among those leaders in the church. So he's writing here, we have a first letter to Timothy, is six chapters. And we're going to look at this verses, we'll read one through 11, but we'll just, we'll just cover a couple verses, I think, but we will try to go into a little bit of depth on the, on the false teaching that was taking place there in Ephesus. So that's where Timothy is. That's where Paul had been. And now he has some strong words. He has a charge for Timothy. And he wants this young man to stay on in Ephesus and set things in order in this wonderful city, but even a more wonderful uh, church body. As we begin, there is one little bit, one verse, really, a background that I'd like to read from Acts chapter 20. So if you'll turn there, I would not have you go there unless the, these were really connected and they are vitally connected and they will, uh, they will make sense when you, when you let your eyes fall to that verse. Verse 28 of Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's farewell to Ephesus. This is where he had dedicated his life. He had, he had preached the gospel. A church had sprung up there in this uh, rather cosmopolitan city. And over here in verse 28, we have Luke's recording of this situation, this farewell to Ephesus. The Bible tells us over in verse 17 that he called to him the elders of the church. And they came to him. And then he unfolds a little bit of just recollecting things that had happened when he was there. And he gets down to verse 28. And he gives this very specific caution or warning to these leaders. 
He calls them elders in verse 17. He calls them bishops or episcopos, and he calls them also, he says that they shepherd the church of God. And this is in verse 28. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. These are strong words, and these are to the leaders there in Ephesus, leaders of the church. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. He says a lot in that one verse. And then look at 29. I know, this is what Paul says, he is leaving, this is his farewell to the leaders there. I know... That after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul says, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. And in everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. But those words ring out to us tonight where he says in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then even from among your own selves, he says, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And he tells them to be on the alert. And then we, we find this letter, this letter addressed to Timothy. And where is Timothy? He's, he's in Ephesus. Timothy is a pastor of this uh, congregation And we find that Paul is going to encourage Timothy to stay. And then there's a particular reason that he wants him to stay on and hang on and stand firm there in Ephesus. So we'll read our text tonight, verses 1 through 11, and just begin to scratch the surface of this wonderful book this letter of instruction for the church not only the church there and then but the church here and now 
highly relevant. It's to the leaders of the church. And uh, I, should, I should point out that given our church polity, our church structure, which is congregational, that you should be as familiar with this word as, as I am. Right? Because this is how we measure those who minister among us. And it's of vital importance. So verse 1 there, Paul, an apostle of Christ. And we just glide over that. I want you to know that he is writing this word with the full weight of heaven behind him. He is writing in the fullness of apostolic authority. This Paul, this one who was converted on the road to Damascus, when what? He was suddenly overwhelmed by a bright flashing light, blinded him. What was that light? Well, that was the Shekinah glory of God. That's what it was. And then he heard the voice of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Paul was a chosen instrument of the Lord to preach the gospel, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles and to kings. And so here we have Paul identifying himself. He is the writer of this letter. He is writing it in the fullness of his apostolic authority. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. And this word for child, is, it's an important word. Had he said son, son designates position, but child here is uh, one who has been begotten. Begotten of what? <laughs> he was born of heaven. He was born again. And he says, Timothy, my true child in the faith. And we believe that Timothy is an actual convert or was converted to Jesus under or through Paul's ministry. So he is able to say, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So you can tell back then they wrote letters differently than we do now. We, we put the recipients at the top, dear so-and-so, and then we sign the sender signs at the bottom of the letter. When we get through writing, now we might have a postscript, but we're going to write the body of the letter and we sign our name. Not, not back then. Paul identifies himself right off the bat. He's the, he's the writer. And then we have the recipient right there. Two, it's two, Timothy, my true child in the faith. And the the letters back then were, were all like this, whether it was a secular letter or, or something sacred like this. The only difference is the Christians would, uh, would add some things. And you can tell Paul, 
he, he doesn't just say he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. He says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior. And of Christ Jesus who is our hope. So it's this introduction is laced with Christian doctrine. With uh, Christian terminology. So it's rich in this. And it's to Timothy. He says my, my true child in the faith. Grace The unmerited favor of God. What does grace do? Grace removes the guilt. Mercy, what does mercy do? Mercy of God removes the punishment that we deserve for our sin. And and what's the outcome when we receive grace that removes the guilt and mercy that removes the punishment that is due a, a sinner before God? Well, the result is peace. And he says grace, mercy, and peace. From God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That verse 5 right there is pure gold. Right there. One verse. The goal of apostolic instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is Not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. So this is the word of the Lord tonight. Father in heaven, uh, we thank you uh, for the opportunity to open the scriptures to this, uh, these letters, these pastoral epistles, letters from Paul to, to Timothy his young child in the faith, and uh, 
and Titus. And Lord, the, the instruction here for, for the church uh, concerning really our conduct in the church is something that, Lord, we should attend to, that we should pay attention to, that we should receive and, and think about and, and walk in. And so, Lord, uh, we would ask that you impress these words upon our hearts. Help us to see the value, the importance. Uh, Help us to strive for obedience to your word and and an appreciation, Lord, for what you've raised up in the church uh, through the preaching of the gospel. And Lord, we we, uh, are so grateful and thankful for uh, for all that you've done. And we know the church is, is just so important to you. And, uh, and so, Lord, uh, just work in our lives uh, through this uh, study. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, right here, uh, verses 3 and 4, I think we'll... Uh, really will take the remainder, uh, remaining part of the message. But I want us to look there. He says, I, as I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. So you, Paul's off and running. He was there three years, and now he's leaving. He's going to Macedonia. But he is concerned about the church in Ephesus, and he is urging... Urge is a strong word there. I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. And then he tells him why. He says, so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. So it sounds like what Paul said in Acts 20 actually came true. That certain ones came into the church and they were like those savage wolves that were trying to devour the sheep. And Paul, not present anymore, wants Timothy to stay in his stead and what? And instruct certain ones not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So the last thing these people were doing there in the church of Ephesus, the last thing they were doing was keeping the main thing the main thing. The last thing they were doing was keeping Jesus Christ front and center. And all of a sudden you've got this, this speculative, intellectual, uh, elitist, Uh, false doctrine uh, being talked about. He mentions it right here. Myths, endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So what was this heresy? Now that's Paul saying, Timothy, you stay there and you teach sound doctrine and you instruct certain ones not to teach heresy, not to teach strange doctrines. The last thing the church needs is strange doctrine. Amen? 
And, uh, and I, would, I would say this, there's probably no shortage of strange doctrine going on in so-called churches in our day. So it's, a, it's timely. This is, this is good for us to, to uh, give attention to. So what was the heresy? Well, you read through the pastorals, uh, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, and you kind of put it, you piece it together. And then you try to, so I think it was, I think it was an amalgamation of things. I think you've got some Jewish legalism there. We'll look at some verses that support that. I think you've got this intellectualism, this, you know, highly, you know, this, uh, this, 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 these secrets, this knowledge that only a few people uh, can figure out. That was real important to them. I mean, they're bringing in myths. They're bringing in endless genealogies. Um, This is something that uh, Timothy's supposed to take a stand against. All right, let's give six uh, characteristics of this heresy, and we'll give some verses that go with it. The first one, we mentioned it, but we're going to, we'll nail it down with some verses here. This um, intellectual, uh, the speculative intellectual elitism. First Timothy one four. There it is. Myths, endless genealogies, and what do these do? When you when these people were introducing myths and endless genealogies, what are they doing? Well, they're turning their attention away from Jesus, the gospel of Jesus of his sinless life and his death on the cross, his resurrection, they're turning away from that and they're giving attention to myths, endless genealogies. And what happens? It gives rise to mere speculation. And as it gives rise to mere speculation, which is just more questions, they are dismissing the administration of God, which is by faith. So Paul is serious about this. So there's an intellectual elitism. Uh, Chapter 6, verse 4, if you turn there, he is, it says he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in what? Controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil, suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And that's uh, self-manufactured godliness, so-called godliness. Paul explains in the verses that follow, but that's important right there. They're just, they're just uh, entertaining controversies, disputes about words, out of which arise what? Envy, strife, abusive language. All this comes from a neglect of the truth. My goodness, do you think that would ever happen in church? Do you think anybody ever gets caught on some question? Like, we've got to talk about this. Like... I want to talk to people about Jesus. They want to ask me, hey, where'd Cain get his wife? 
Well, you go figure that out. I mean, it's, people come up with questions and they get hung up on questions. I really don't care where Cain goes why. What I care about is your spiritual well-being. And who's Jesus? Who is he? Oh, he's the son of God. He died for your sin. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He's returning. He's coming back. So we see this speculation. There's no end to that. I'm telling you, that's a rabbit hole you don't want to go down. You start entertaining all these all these questions and goodness gracious, things can get out of hand pretty quick. So Titus three, verse nine. Titus three nine, but avoid foolish controversies. There it is, right right there before us. I'm helping myself tonight. I've highlighted these, but avoid, avoid them. Foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And then he says, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. The real help, the real spiritual help comes when we receive Jesus as our Savior, and then we walk in him, and we learn of him. And our hearts, we grow in assurance as we bring the word of God into our lives, and as we understand the word of God. Assurance, spiritual assurance of salvation does not come as we entertain Questions of great controversy. The second uh, characteristic of this uh, heresy is pride. Uh, we read the verse a moment ago there in 1 Timothy 6, verse 4. He is what? He is conceited. He's conceited. He's full of pride. He thinks he understands something that nobody else understands and he wants to make a big deal out of it. Paul says, Timothy, this person is conceited. They understand nothing. They have a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise all these uh, negative things, envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions. I mean, I don't, I don't, from a time perspective, I mean, who's got time for that? Who's got time to entertain crazy questions? I don't have that kind of time. I don't think you have that kind of time. Just from a time perspective, but from a doctrinal perspective, it's, it's undermining to the health of a church, to the health of a congregation, to take the focus off of Christ off of his finished work on the cross and put it on something else that will never be answered. The third uh, characteristic would be asceticism. This is like a legalism. This is like do's and don'ts, 1 Timothy 4.3. So he says, uh, we'll start in verse 1, but verse 3 is the key verse. He says, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
See, I think that's really what's behind this false teaching. Doctrines of demons. There are demons behind these false teachings. I know it sounds weird, but the devil's a liar. The devil's a deceiver. Makes sense. By means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Here it is. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So they were making rules to go along with this. And they were imposing these rules on others, right? If you want to make a rule and go by it yourself, fine. You start imposing that rule on everybody else. We got a problem, right? That's what he says here. This is, they're forbidding marriage. They're advocating abstaining from foods which God created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. So there's an asceticism. There's a, a legalism here. Uh, Titus 1.15. Uh, there's a... This verse uh, just really supports uh, the fact that there was legalism going on with this intellectual elitist uh, speculation. To the pure, he says, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. By their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. This legalism. Fourthly, immorality was involved. 2 Timothy 3, 6. 2 Timothy 3, 6. Paul says, for among them... And he's referring to a certain group of people that are following this heresy are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. And he further describes these folks in verse 7. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. What an indictment on folks who follow a false teaching. Always learning. Always something new. Always something to tantalize the intellect. And at the same time, they're so far away from the truth, they wouldn't know the truth if it hit them in the face. They can't... It's Jesus, but they're over here looking for something else. There's, an, there's asceticism, there's immorality, there's tales and words. 1 Timothy 1.4, 1 Timothy 6.20. Let's go to 6.20 since we're closer. Words, words and tales. Lots of words, lots of tales. 1 Timothy 6, verse 20. Oh, Timothy, this is the... Conclusion to this wonderful letter, personal letter there from Paul to Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments 
of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the truth. Grace be with you. Tales and words, worldly and empty chatter. First um, Timothy one four. We read it a while ago. Tales and tales and words, nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. And in all of that, in all of that heresy are lots and lots and lots of words and zero profit. To be sure, any heresy, especially a heresy of this nature that we're reading about, has no place in the church of God. None. Timothy is there. He's being urged by Paul to stay there and to instruct the people that were promoting these myths and endless genealogies. He was to instruct them toward a better path, the narrow way that leads to life and life eternal. And then finally, and we've touched on it, Jewish legalism. Titus 1.14. Titus 1.14. I know we're all over the place here in these pastorals, but it's profitable. And so you have a Jewish element here. He says, not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth. And then 1 Timothy 1.11. We read this a while ago, and it's, it's powerful. He says, oh, we got we to gotta back up a little bit. Yeah, right there. Uh, verse 8, 9, 8 and 9. But we know that the law is good. If, if one uses it lawfully. Realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. We'll, we'll cover this later on. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. So we're talking about this legalism, and it's right here in verse 8. We know that the law is good, Paul says, if it's used lawfully. So evidently there are people there promoting this heresy that are using the law in a way that God did not intend it to be used among his church people. That's important. And we'll cover that later on down the road. But uh, this is, the, this is the, um, the heresy. So you put all that together. There was a thing back then called Gnosticism. It was the Gnosis. Gnosis, knowledge. Special knowledge. So the Gnostics of the day, which would have been more Greek, but then you've got the Jewish element there. So I think there's two things coming together. This intellectualism along with this Jewish legalism part of it. And they have this whole system. 
I'll share just a little bit of it with you, and you're going to go, wow, that's, wow. I mean, it'll wear you out just listening to a little of it. We do not promote it. It's crazy. It's the heresy that Timothy is there to combat. So the Gnostics believed that God was holy. They did believe in God. They believed that God was holy. They believed that matter was evil. So God is holy, and they believed matter is evil. So when it came to creation, they had a difficult time. Because how would holy God create something that's evil? And then, of course, what's that, what's that do with Jesus? What, you know, Jesus was man. He was fully God, fully man. So the way they constructed their, their heresy, their false doctrine, is they had these things called, I think they're pronounced eons, A-E-O-N-S. And so these are emanations from holy God. And each, and they've got a lot of these eons. I mean, they're just making this up as they go along. I mean, <laughs> I mean so, so you've got all these eons. And these eons are like, like angels. And they, and they digress from God. Each eon gets a little more wicked as he gets from God. And at some point, they get to an eon that's able to create what we have. I know, you're sitting there going, you're shaking your head. You're going, yeah, I can't even keep up with it. I'm having trouble explaining it. It's crazy. And then each eon has a genealogy. Each eon has a special name. And there's a password. And there's this and there's that. Have you, do you understand this level? And do you understand that level? This is craziness this is what Paul, this is why Paul says, Timothy, please stay on. No, I urge you to stay on in Ephesus. Evidently, this heresy had taken root among the people in Ephesus, among the church people. And Paul has gotten wind of this. And he says, Timothy, the only way for this, to, uh, to stop this freight train is for you to stay and for you to instruct these men not to pay attention to these myths and this, these genealogies and this speculation that's going on rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. So that's, that just gives you a little taste and me a little taste, and I don't want any more of a taste of that. That, is, that stuff is just bogus. It was bogus then, it's bogus now, and it has no place in the church, and it leads to all kinds of behavior that does not honor God, in the, doesn't even come close to honoring God. So you could tell just by reading these few verses how this heresy could take root and then just devastate the church of the living God. It takes the attention all the, away from Jesus it relegates Jesus, it bypasses Jesus when he should be lifted up among the church, among the congregation. So this is really important to Paul, and he is counting on Timothy, his young child or true child in the faith, to stay and stand and teach. Now... Um, Three things about Timothy, and we'll wrap it up. He's young. We, 
there's some other scriptures that tell us that he was probably very timid. I always, I always think of him as timid Timothy. You know, it's that, you know, be, you know, he, uh, he tells, Paul tells him to be, be strong. Paul tells him to stand firm. Let no one look down on your youth, but stand and teach. So we think he's timid. And, um, so he, and, and he is a convert of Paul's. Those three things. So I think with that introduction, verses 1 and 2, and then looking specifically at that heresy that was thriving in the church in Ephesus, that we have a, a good base to go forward and to receive the instruction that uh, Paul gives Timothy for conduct that glorifies God in the church. Now, he'll, in the first letter to Timothy, he'll, he will urge or raise up the, the desire for prayer in the church He's going to deal with overseers and deacons, leaders in the church. Um, He will, of course, he gives a very strong charge to Timothy in all of this. He talks about widows in the church and how needs should be handled in the church. And uh, further instructions on those who minister. Second Timothy is more personal. It's more... um, Timothy, this is what this is what you need to do. First Timothy is more for the the church at large, and then Titus is more uh, for the church at large. Father in heaven, thank you for the time together tonight. I trust that uh, Lord, we will keep your word before us. That we will fix our eyes on our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who lived, died, was buried, rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven, right now carries out a high priestly ministry of intercession, the one who holds everything together, and, and Lord, one day he will come again. We look forward to that day. The day that we lay our eyes on our Savior. We look forward to that. Lord, your blessing be upon each one tonight. Go with us. Give us safe travels. Give us good rest tonight. May your peace Dwell in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.